2: Wilma Rudolph for me is is somebody who we remember a very particular way. Uh-huh. She steals our hearts in 1960 with her triple gold performance, and she's a winning smile, and she's described as dainty with long legs. But we don't really see that as her life continues over the decade. She's getting more and more militant, um, and she is, uh, you know, she ends up working in UCLA's newly formed AFAM uh, department. And she's really outspoken and hypercritical about her use as a propagandist, you know, in the Cold War, um, about pay quality for women athletes, about a whole hoist of things.
3: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to Professor at Penn State and co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, Professor Davis, about Can't Eat a Metal, the Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. That's her research, and I can't wait to chop it up with Professor Davis about this. Also, I've got some choice words about the affirmative case for Becky Hammond to become the first woman to be a professional head coach in the National Basketball Association. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards this week, Stand Up to the NFLPA, Sit Your Ass Down to a certain soccer club in Jerusalem, and I've got a very special Kaepernick watch with an assist from Wale. But first, let's go to Professor Davis. So, Professor Davis, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I wanted to jump right in and ask you about your primary research. You're you're working on a book called Can't Eat a Medal? The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. Can you speak about that research, please?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. So my book explores black women athletes from the turn of the 20th century all the way up to just before Title IX. Um, and I picked that area of time because a lot of times we don't know um, a lot about women athletes before Title IX. And we've done a lot of work on black male athletes in this period, um, and we know their names. We can conjure the names of John Carlos, of Muhammad Ali, um, of of Jack Johnson. And sometimes uh, in that, matrix, Black women especially, are left behind. But beyond that, it's not just this kind of recovery project. What my book is really pushing us to consider is the way that um, things change when you insert Black women into these narratives. And in particular, I'm really concerned with how Black women's athletic bodies were used by institutions, by the country, uh, by sporting organizations to advance their own kind of political or economic goals. So that spans everything from historically Black colleges and universities investing in and using women's uh, track or women's basketball to build up what they consider modern universities. I talk about how there's more opportunities for Black women in sports at this time. So again, this is before Title IX, one of the only places You could get any semblance of athletic scholarship to go to college if you were a woman was actually at a black school like Tuskegee or Tennessee State. And so they are, you know, before Title IX, providing opportunities for women to play sports in college. And so I explore some of the reasons why that was more open to them uh, in in the early 20th century and the mid 20th century. But it also goes to consider things like um, how the State Department used people like Wilma Rudolph as goodwill ambassadors at the height of the Cold War, and why in particular, uh, these black women track stars, um, or Althea Gibson, so in tennis, were like the perfect vessels to spread capitalist democracy around the world. So it really pushes us to consider more than why, why do we look at these women as kind of symbols, um, but what has been wrought off their backs? And if we can understand that, then we can understand labor. And if we understand their athletic accomplishments as a form of labor, then what we're really doing is looking at a whole new way to uh, critique amateurism, a whole new lineage about what amateurism is, about what athletic labor looks like, about what symbolic labor looks like. And so that's a little bit about what my book probes. And it ends with Title IX because one of the things that I want to push us to consider is that same way that we understand the cost of integration that happens with like black college football. You know, Derek White has done great work on this, thinking about the ways that, Black college football programs really fall and collapse mm-hmm. under the weight of integration. You can do this with the Negro Leagues. We know this story is familiar, but one of the things that we don't see as well is the same way that Title IX had that effect for black programs um, and how black women are used in these moments to try to shore up um, these spaces.
3: Mm. Now, now, Bill Roden, I believe this was in $40 million Slaves, he, he lamented the lack of historical documentation. For black women athletes during the period that you're talking about. Can you speak a little bit about your research, like how you were able to find your source materials and put together uh, this history, a history that certainly was not recorded to the degree to which not only white athletics, but even black male athletics were at that time?
2: Yeah, totally. I think this is part of doing black women's history in general is there's not going to be one intuitive place. You, you don't find a library or archive that's like black women. Like, it's just it doesn't happen. Um, and so you have to get really creative. For me, I was I started looking at college programs and black co- Colleges have um, gems in their archives, but unfortunately, because of the state of Black colleges and universities currently, a lot of these places are under-resourced. Um, there's few archivists working in there. Some They need a lot of help. And so um, that was one of the first places I started. And there I found scrapbooks and journals. And sometimes you don't find them in Black women's papers, but you look at Black men who have daughters or wives, and that's where their papers are actually held. And so then I you know, looked in those papers, and you have like documents where people are uh, talking about trying to start competitive athletics at Fisk in the 1920s. So all of a sudden you have all of these documents about college age women in the 1920s who are saying give us competitive sports like we want to play and so that's one of the ways i sourced it i also worked at national archives looking at the state department records um, in the cold war era Um, there's sometimes where you have somebody who's an athlete but unless you um there's like papers for them but they're not understood to be athletes so they're not going to be like hashtag under sports or um put in that kind of file but when you realize that oh no this person was understood as a track star then you can go and find their paper somewhere else but still know that that can give you a clue about um athletics and then the other biggest thing uh, is black newspapers you know they are such a treasure trove obviously like work that like Lou Moore does really highlights this, but I couldn't do anything that I um, have done without Black newspapers. And they have a robust, uh, they always are keeping track of Black women athletes from uh, neighborhood leagues to high schools to colleges uh, and to some professional players as well so black newspapers were amazing and then I do some oral history so I talked to coach Temple um, down at Tennessee State while he was still alive, uh, Wyoming ties, um Edith McGuire, a lot of the Tiger Bells. Um, and so that has also helped fill in some of the spaces that are gaps in the, um, in the actual archives.
3: Mm, the Tiger Bells, the legendary track team from Tennessee State. Yes. For, for, my, for my non-knowledgeable listeners. <laughs> um, I, I do uh, want to ask you about, like, take it back to the turn of the 20th century with the start of organized sports. There's a lot of scholarship about white women at this time, and particularly white middle-class women, and the denial of sports, and the way that they had to fight at women's colleges to have access to, to basic athletics. What was the situation like for black women at this time? Because there was, was there less emphasis on keeping them off the playing field? Was there, in effect, perhaps more space? to express themselves athletically because less of an obsession about their, their purity and their femininity and their womanhood, or did it operate in a different way? What was it like for black women at the turn of the 20th century?
2: Yeah, well, was actually divided. So, um, you definitely have an obsession over womanhood and femininity. Um, but, you have it expressed in different ways. So one thing that happens, uh, so for the group that definitely mirrors some of what we know about middle-class white women, you have black women physical educators, for instance, who are emerging in this period of time, and they are emerging people like uh, Mary Reeves Allen from Howard University, who is has this concept of what she called beauty health. So the idea that tying Ideas about uh, femininity and womanhood and reproduction to a kind of modern athleticism that wasn't rooted in competition because that would just be too much for women, but certainly in a certain exercise expression that was um, one form of expression for, for athletics. And so this was really big for like a playground movement. This was really big for like middle-class black women. Again, class in the black community is, is less material and more about um, performance, like how you wear your hair, where what uh, church you go to, uh, what occupation you have. So the kind of performance of a middle-class respectability, a lot of women coming out of that tradition are certainly opening avenues for expression, but this is gonna align uh, much more with like the seven sister schools. So they're gonna be promoting play days, uh, women, girls rules basketball, where, you know, you're just passing the ball or there's six people and you can't sweat, you know? Um, So that's definitely going to, there's a facet of women who are doing that. And a lot of times they're at these kind of elite liberal arts schools. So Fisk, um, for example. But then you also have a, a group of folks who are seeing athletics as an avenue for race, pride, and expression, um, seeing it as a, a place where Black people can assert their dominance. So especially when Black women find themselves in competition with white women, you know, they're going to be all over the pages. Like, this is a way that we can refute our supposed inferiority. And so you have both of those things operating at the same time. So it it causes some really interesting moments and tensions where on one hand you have avenues like the Tuskegee Relays opening up for black women early on and Tuskegee Relays operate, right? Kind of like Penn Relays operate now, but for black colleges and high schools, like Tuskegee Relays were where it was at. Like everybody went, they had galas and dances. It was it was as much about a carnival and a celebration as it was about these athletic champions. Can, can you
3: give a year range for the yeah, Tuskegee games you. when they were at their peak?
2: Yeah, so they start in the late 20s, um, and by the early 30s, they are on the map as, like, everybody has to go to the Tuskegee Relays. Um, and that's actually, this is started by Cleve Abbott at Tuskegee, and this is around the time that they're trying to solidify these um Athletic leagues within black colleges as a way to say hey, we're organized We have our own sporting spaces. We have our separate games and we have our own championships So it's not just track even though that's the dominant feature, but it's tennis championships. It's golf And so Tuskegee really takes on this uh, huge uh, place in the scheme of black college athletics at this time
3: mm. And when do you start seeing, you mentioned integrated ra- uh, races and and those becoming scenes of race pride, morality plays, if you will. What, when do you start to see that on the tra- in track and field?
2: Yeah, so with track and field, you have that randomly. Like you always are going to have some people who are invited to pen Relays and whatnot. But you're not going to get, I mean, it, it follows the same lines, the same way you're having Jack Johnson box and uh, you're having these expressions. You have track meets. Track, though, as a, a, a sport of importance, uh, doesn't really happen until much later. So track becomes really important after the World War, um, and it really uh, catapults to a place of national importance at the height of the Cold War. So in the early, in the 20s, um, in 30s, people are, like certainly Jesse Owens is is big, and it really, but it mostly is inter international sporting spaces. And after the war, you're gonna get uh, local track, AAU meets. Um, you're going to get the Pan American Games. Um, you're going to get the dual meets with the Soviet Union taking place both in the United States and in the Soviet Union. And those are going to become uh, really important. That's when people are going to pack the stadiums and stuff like that. But that that's not where it is at the beginning of the 20th century. Track is like, okay, you know, track. It's mm-hmm. not boxing.
3: Let me ask you about the, the Cold War trips. Um, obviously... A big part of it was the U.S. State Department trying to project an image to the world that says, look, you know, the Soviet Union says we're a racist country, we're a sexist country, look at these black women. This shows that we're something else, so that there's a lot of uh, propaganda involved in these trips. Do, do we have any r- record of uh, some of these, these women thinking about these trips critically, thinking about what they're being asked to sell and wondering if they're being asked to sell something that perhaps they don't agree with?
2: Yeah, so all the time. Uh, And it it expresses itself in a myriad of ways. So you have something as simple as uh, black women being on these dual meet trips and doing a press conference in the Soviet Union, fully aware that the reporters there are going to ask them about the Jim Crow South, and they'll say uh you know they talk about white officials jumping in and saying no 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 we're all living in harmony and they'll they'll remark um it's funny we had to come across the world to become full citizens and so you have that kind of pushback in the moment uh in a more uh kind of radical turn you have somebody like rose robinson from chicago who refuses to go refuses to go on the trips and um this is one of the places where i talk about archivally A lot of Rose's records are in places that understand her to be a pacifist, but if you read the pages of the Chicago Defender around the time that Rose Robinson is saying, I'm not going on these state-sponsored trips, she is described as an athlete, first and foremost. So archivally, if you went and looked for an athlete to say no to the trips, you're not going to find her, but if you went to look for a pacifist who's saying no to state-sponsored propaganda trips, then that's where you would find Rose Robinson, but she was an athlete and she was approached. As an athlete to go on these trips and she is also notable because she's the one at the Pan Am Games who's kneeling for the anthem in 1959 Mm. um, or sitting refusing to stand for it uh, in the Pan Am Games in Chicago so Rose is hypercritical of these trips she uh there and she's loud about it she's giving uh, you know interviews to the defender she's giving interviews to jet and she's like i'm not going to be a pawn i'm not going to be a tool in this kind of propaganda effort I'm, and i'm not going to use my tax dollars to support this war machine like i'm not doing it you're not going to use my body to do that and um i don't think it's a coincidence that within 6 months of publicly saying no to going on these trips, she's indicted for tax evasion um, and thrown in jail over $380. And um, that's where she stages a hunger strike, and this is what really kind of gains publicity um, for her refusal to both go on the trip and to eat after she's been thrown in jail for tax evasion over $380. But beyond somebody like Rose, you even have well-known people like Wilma Rudolph, who, you know, is sent to Senegal for three weeks as part of this kind of propaganda effort. And while she's there, ditches her chaperone, ditches her handler and is going and hanging out with folks. She's hanging out with the young pioneers, which is Nkrumah's. um you know, kind of youth nationalist youth group, and she's basically, uh, if we believe the reports of some um, some black ambassadors over there, saying she's getting in touch with the people, and she's saying I feel welcomed by them, and so she does that, and then at the same time she's doing the embassy stuff, but you can see how it affects her too. So she's taking something from the trips, and when she gets back from that that trip that she did to West Africa within three weeks, she's um, on the front lines of uh, direct action protest to integrate a local restaurant in Clarksville, Tennessee. So, you know, she's getting inspiration from these trips as well as pushing back in subtle ways. So you have people like Rose Robinson who are really quite vocal about it. And then people like Wilma who are kind of maneuvering in, in a, a little bit of different way.
3: Can, can, I, I think a lot of my listeners are not even going to know the Rose Robinson story. Can you... Uh, give her whole narrative, what happens when she's in jail, what happens when she gets out of jail, how she's remembered, how she isn't remembered. Can you can you yeah. g- give us a, a, yeah, a, sh- totally. a short bio sketch so people can leave? Because I think her story is so important.
2: It's so fascinating. So yeah, so like I said, Rose Robinson um, goes to jail. And then when she's in jail, she decides that she's going to do a hunger strike and she's not going to eat. And so this is what starts getting a lot of coverage. Because Uh, If you look at some pictures of her, she literally has to be carried into the courtroom, carried to her jail cell, because she's become so kind of frail. And so at first, as I mentioned, the defender and folks are reporting this as like a a local athlete. She's a high jumper, Olympic hopeful. But very soon um, what happens is some pacifist groups, American Friends Committee, like some of the anti-war groups um, are going to start picketing on her behalf in front of the courthouse, um, amplifying her hunger strike. So certainly a lot of times how she's remembered is as a kind of pacifist and, and, and whatnot. So she's essentially in jail and she stays in jail for a few months. Like she's she the hunger strike goes on. Um, and they keep her in jail for a long time because every time they bring her in front of the judge, they say, OK, stop your hunger strike, pay your fine, go home. And she refuses to capitulate at all, which is why she keeps ending up, um, you know, in the jail cell. And when she finally gets released um, from jail, she doesn't stop being vocal and active, but definitely her athletic career wanes. Um, part of it is that she physically is greatly diminished from um, from her protest. And so you have her kind of on the AU scene after that, but not really to the level that she was. Um, and then she kind of steps away from sport. And so then how she's remembered, as I mentioned, is as a pacifist. So they start tracking some of the work she does as a social worker in Chicago and her kind of second career then as somebody in Chicago who's a youth worker and a social worker and um, uh, somebody like that. And we actually kind of lose all sense of her athletic career at all. Um, And so now, really, there's uh, very little on her. Um, Lou Moore in his book uh, has a few pages on her to start, I think, chapter four, chapter five, one of those chapters. um, I write a little bit about her. um, And then there's a, a historian who does write about her as a pacifist, who I think is working on a project about her. But she's definitely kind of like a hidden figure. And especially in this moment that we're living in, she's really instructive to as a reminder that black women were always engaged in athletic protests. They were always um, you know, part of this and uh, early reminder of, of athletes who refused to participate in whether it's a national anthem or a state sponsored kind of propaganda effort. Uh, you know, Bennett did this, of course, with Israel. Um, and so there's a long history and genealogy of a lot of stuff that we're seeing today that includes black women.
3: Now, 1959, refusing to stand for the anthem. Is there an earlier precedent for an athlete doing that or is Rose Robinson the first?
2: Yeah, not that I have found. Um, and so I think that I know Lou, I don't think Lou has found anything either. Um, so that is, for me, in the black newspapers. That's very papers, important. Yeah. That's, if that's we're talking about the of, first person to yeah,
3: protest. To refuse the to
2: stand. Yep, exactly.
3: And doing it on internationalist grounds, which is yeah. really remarkable. So yeah. you mentioned Rose Robinson. Uh, when we think of black women and athletic resistance... Other than Rose Robinson, are there any other figures that you think that my listeners need to know, hold to to their hearts?
2: Yeah, well, definitely – Wilma Rudolph, for me, is is somebody who we remember a very particular way. Uh She steals our hearts in 1960 with her triple gold performance, and she's a winning smile, and she's described as dainty with long legs. But we don't really see that as her life continues over the decades, she's getting more and more militant. Um, And she is, uh, you know, she ends up working in UCLA's newly formed uh, AFAM department. And she's really outspoken and hypercritical about her use as a propagandist, you know, in the Cold War, um, about pay quality for women athletes, about a whole hoist of things, uh, obviously about integration. You have people like Erlene Brown, who I absolutely adore because Erlene Brown was a three time Olympian. She was a thrower um, and she was kind of unconventional. They always commented on her size. Uh, they would say she's over 300 pounds and Arlene was really interesting because she didn't fit any box that the State Department would use. She wasn't like Wilma, she wasn't like dainty and long legged. Um, but they end up using her in a different way because she didn't have she raised her own money to go to the Olympic games and because she didn't have a chaperone she also didn't have as many regulations so she quickly became known in the Olympic village for the person who threw the best poker parties the best dance parties and you have records of these state officials and people in the USOC being like oh she has promoted goodwill for Uncle Sam in the Olympic Village. So we're just going to kind of let her rock. But Erlene is also very outspoken. So it's Earline, um Brown in 1964 who says, the story of Negro girls in the Olympics is that they're Cinderella girls. They're not supposed to be on jet planes eating caviar. They're not supposed to be in Rome or Holinsky or Melbourne. They're not supposed to be doing any of this. Um, but they're the ones upholding the American ideal abroad. But when they get home, uh, it's bills, bills, bills. And so she is somebody who I always kind of think of as a very vocal um, person who's able to navigate these spaces. She ends up and has a career as a um, in roller derby. Um, so wow. Earlene Brown, and then certainly uh, Wyoming Tyus, who whose wow. book is coming out. As you know, I'm so glad this book is here now. And Tyus has a really compelling narrative um, that that situates her actions not only in 1968, but in 1964 in her career. But with Tyus, you really get a a viewpoint into what Black women were doing and how they were thinking about proposed boycotts leading up to the 68 games and what they did once they got to the games, including wearing Black protest shorts, including raising their fists as they crossed the finish line, including dedicating their medals. Of course, to Tommy and John, um, and all of the ways that they also engaged in protest that was left cover. I mean, you know, Lee Evans, like a lot of protest in sixty eight was um, not seen because of the magnitude of what Tom and Johnny uh, what Tom and Johnny <laughs> what Tommy and John did. But um, I think that it's really important for Wyoming's story to be out there because she's saying, look, First of all, as black women, we had a particular stance on not only Liberal's boycott, but of these issues. So we were when when we heard the OPHR say human rights, we understood human rights to be about eradicating racism, but also eradicating patriarchy. And that, I think, really invested uh, and resonated with her. So not only is she going out of her way to protest and dedicate medals in 68, but after 68, she's going to become one of the athletes on the front lines pushing for pay equality, pushing for professional opportunities for women after Title IX, and also really vocal about the way Title IX disproportionately benefits white women athletes and how she's been in the shadow of somebody like Billie Jean King, where there's like a co-founding of say the Women's Sports Foundation, but we tend to understand it as like Billie Jean King started the Women in Sports Foundation. But Taya's story does that kind of intersectional work to say, no, first of all, black women were in 68 and they were also post 72 at the front lines of pushing for the women's sporting revolution. And if we understand them to be in both spaces, we can look at how, how power works um and how all these kind of intersection systems work, um, and so that's why I think Tyus' story is particularly important.
3: When are we going to be able to read Candy to Metal? These stories are so important, and I don't know anybody else doing this depth of work that you're doing.
2: Yeah, hopefully next year. I'll keep you updated. You know, academic publishing. And yes. <laughs> all of that. But uh, yeah, hopefully next year sometime.
3: Wow, it's fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for your time. I would be so remiss if I didn't ask you, though, um, about what it's like to do this kind of work at Penn State University. Yeah. Particularly in the aftermath of, of Joe Paterno and the sporting culture at Penn State.
2: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because um, Penn State's a big school. <laughs> and I think that there has there is pockets of all sorts of people here. So certainly you have people who are still clinging Tooth and nail to the legacy of paternal and seemingly making its life <laughs> their life work to like defend his honor, and then you have most people uh, in that I interact with in my departments, both in the history department and women's gender sexuality studies and African American studies, and then over in kinesiology, who just could not even be bothered to care at all about that or actively kind of protesting against that. And so I think the benefit that you have at Penn State is you do have all of these different intellectual homes where this fascinating work is happening. So I'm in history. I'm also in women's studies, which is one of the top WGSS programs in the nation, and really kind of radical stuff happening there. We just hosted Jess Luther, for instance, and had amazing turnout where people are eager to talk about the intersection of sports and sexual violence. Um, we have people like Abe Kahn here who wrote a book on Kurt Flood, and he writes about uh, he's a rhetoric scholar who examines uh, black uh, athletic protest and then of course over in kinesiology we have some tremendous people Jamie Schultz, Mike Dyer, Mark and doing work over there um, in, in a really good sports studies program that thinks critically about uh, race and gender and class and language and all of this stuff. We have a new center for sports and so just this year alone for instance um, we had a big event that I organized for the 68 Olympics where we actually had uh, Dr. Harry Edwards here, we had Tommy Smith here. we had Wyoming here, um, and it was the the flagship kind of programming for this 1968 exploration that the College of Liberal Arts was doing all year, and we had we were turning people away at the door. We had easily 300 people, you know, trying to come in to hear this panel. Um, Lou spoke here. Jess Luther was here. Uton um, Thomas was here. Like we, so in in many ways. Um, There is a vibrancy of people not only considering sports critically, but just doing critical research and critical work on a whole bunch of things. I'm in the African-American studies department where we got a Sawyer seminar on um, racial disposability and cultures of resistance. So we have a lot going on here that is a lot of times at odds with um, the not only the administration, but folks who would want Penn State to go back to being this kind of. Uh, haven of of white male, uh, you know, expression where they have the wholesome football program and you know project a certain image that Joe Pa really embodied for them, and so that tension is definitely here. Um, but I really feel um, grounded in the intellectual work I do within those intellectual communities because. We have amazing students. I teach a gender and sexuality um, in sport class that just finished, where my students produce some of the dopest podcasts on things ranging from mental health, gendered aspects of mental health with athletes, um, to women coaches. They interviewed the coaches here. I have a lot of athletes in my classes. In the fall, I teach race, gender, and sports. So for me, from my vantage point, it's one of the best places to have these conversations because everybody here already knows that sports matter. They already can see, right, what happens with uh, with sports and amateurism and boosterism. They can see the intersection of sexual assault in sports. They can see a lot of these big issues that, like, at other places, you have to kind of convince them to see. Here, they know that it's an issue. They've lived through that. And so it does create this place where you actually can start having these really critical conversations because there's no way somebody could say, oh, that doesn't matter. There's no way they can do that. And then just generally... Being in a place where there's a huge sporting culture and not just the football team. I mean, the women's volleyball team here, by the way, is like one of the best volleyball teams in the nation. We're number one for most of the year. Wrestling was number one. Um, You know, women's hockey here is phenomenal. Uh, and so that's the that's the kind of atmosphere. And so for somebody who cares critically about sports, it's certainly a place where you can, you have, it's very fruitful to engage critically about sports on this campus.
3: That's fantastic. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about one of our favorite podcasts here at the Edge of Sports, the Burn It All Down Pod, of which you are the co-host. Yes. Congratulations on just finishing one year. Thank of you. We're so excited. Online. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, maybe just wanted to give you a second to say a few words about uh, what it's been like to do the podcast, the reaction you've received, and where you want to see it go.
2: Yeah. um, You know, I love the pod. I love my co-hosts. And so for folks who don't know, it's a feminist sports podcast. We have an intersectional view on all things. So we essentially are going to be looking at the complicated, messy topics about nuance. We always have guests. We made it a year and have only had women and non-binary folks as guests. And that's not... Like, we're not excluding folks. We literally made a commitment to always ask ourselves, hey, if we want an expert on this, is there a woman that we know who's an expert first? And there always is. Um, And I think that's really dope. And it's uh, a place where we have two historians and three journalists. And so it makes for some really fun conversations. Um, And I've been so impressed with, like, some of the guests that we've had. Um, and some of the discussions we've had, uh, this week, we have Teresa Runsettler who wrote the book on Jack Johnson, um, who's a professor of history at, uh, American, but a little known fact about her is that she also used to dance for the Toronto Raptors. Uh-huh. So, you know, we, I had a conversation with her about what it's like to be a dancer for the Toronto Raptors and what she thinks about like these current, um, uh, critical issues about equity and exploitation coming out about the Washington football team cheerleaders or the Saints cheerleaders. Um, so things like that is what we do. And my co-hosts are always challenge me when they're not picking on me for my Boston sports fandom. Um, and uh, they are great people to work with because weekly basis, we're having, you know, critical discussions about like Kobe Bryant and WNBA. Um, And how do you reconcile some of these things? Uh, And it's, I have such joy doing it each week and um, like, I can't be happier and everybody should tune in and check it out.
3: Absolutely. Hey, Amira Rose Davis, I got to tell you something we ask every guest who comes on the show and this is how we got to end is what music are you listening to these days? What are you listening to, to either uh, work or play? That's your choice. But what (laughs) is getting you in a good groove in May, 2018?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I still always write to Kendrick. Um, Kendrick makes me write better. Um, uh, J. Cole album is, is new. I haven't listened to all of it, but it's, it's on my Spotify rotation. But really, my weakness right now is Drake's single, Nice For What. Everybody get your motherfucking roll on. I don't shorty and
4: she doesn't want no slow song. Had a man last year, life goes on. Haven't let a thing lose, girl, to so long
2: which has a Louisiana bounce beat on it. And is definitely my anthem for summer 18. So that is, that is what's on my Spotify list right now.
3: Bam. So expect to hear it right now. As we're talking, we're going to play it <laughs> under, as we say, adios. Amir Rose Davis, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
3: Absolutely love it. We'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. Features this week include an incredible expose about affordable housing in the United States. Uh, We have so much. Also, we've got a big article about Zora Neale Hurston which I read and it sent goosebumps up my spine. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the affirmative case for Becky Hammond. Okay, look, San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Becky Hammond has an opportunity to become the first woman to coach an NBA team, having been tapped by the talented, albeit underachieving, Milwaukee Bucks for an interview to fill their vacant head coaching position. Hammond is the only woman employed as an assistant coach in the NBA and could become the first woman to be a head coach in a men's professional league in the U.S. Now naturally, the idea of Hammond blazing this particular trail has provoked all manner of takes on her ability as well as musings about whether an NBA team would respond positively or negatively to a woman coach. The most pertinent article worth reading is by someone who knows her work best, Spurs forward Pau Gasol. In the Players' Tribune, Gasol aims to, quote, knock down a few of the silly arguments and talking points against Coach Hammond's candidacy and the larger idea of a female NBA head coach that I've seen floating around, end quote. The talking points against Hammond's candidacy are indeed silly, not to mention stupid and insulting. The worst, at least based upon what I've surveyed, is by Gary D'Amato in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He argues that if Hammond failed, like every Bucks coach has failed in the last 47 years since their last championship, then, quote, the Bucs would come under fire for allowing a social experiment to derail their title aspirations. Only under Hammond's stewardship would coaching be a social experiment, while I guess the team's previous coaches are just run-of-the-mill failures. Now, instead of repeating what Pau Gasol did so well, knocking down argument after argument against Hammond's candidacy as if they're open jump shots in an empty gym, I want to give the positive argument for her candidacy. Becky Hammond's resume is sterling. She's been an assistant coach on the storied bench of San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich since 2014. If you know Greg Popovich, then you also know that he doesn't do social experiments. He trains future NBA coaches like former assistants Brett Brown, Mike Budenholzer, and now the new coach of the Charlotte Hornets, James Borejo. In 2015, coach Pop tab Becky Hammond to coach the Spurs' summer league team, and she led them to the Las Vegas Summer League Championship. In college, she was a three-time All-American at Colorado State, and then after an all-star laden pro career, she was named in 2011 as one of the top 15 players in WNBA history. I was able to visit Spurs training camp in 2015 with 1968 Olympian John Carlos to speak to the team. As part of the trip, we had the opportunity to watch the coaching staff in action, and I was able to see Hammond ply her trade. Even to an untrained eye, like my own, it was obvious that she was born to coach hyper focused, attentive to detail, and most importantly, she had the players sharply responsive to her every instruction. I saw her direct future Hall of Fame point guard Tony Parker on how to make a cutoff of a pick more sharply. He listened, nodded his head, and shifted his play to greater effect. It was obvious that there already was rapport, a respect, and an understanding that Tony Parker was hearing from somebody who knew her business. Pau Gasol in his Player Tribune article tells a similar story, writing, This year in a practice a few months back, I was drilling the pick and roll with DeJounte Murray, it was a standard drill, and Becky noticed a small detail out of the corner of her eye, and then instantly located both the problem and the solution. And not only that, but we were also able to communicate with each other in such a way that we got the result we needed. It's a good reminder, I'd say, of the importance of communication between team members, especially at the NBA level. I don't think I caught another stray pass the rest of the season." End quote. I am convinced that Becky Hammond would be a top-tier NBA coach. People have always derided sports trailblazers as social experiments. That's nothing new. Some, like Jackie Robinson, get a chance to show that their place is in the game. Others, like Michael Sam, are denied that opportunity. Becky Hammond has the resume and the acumen to kick all kinds of ass. Here's hoping she gets the chance. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award goes to the NFL Players Association for issuing a blistering, absolutely blistering defense of Eric Reed, in joining him in issuing a non-injury grievance on his behalf. It was a very important shot across the bow at Roger Goodell, a very important statement that protests that are staged during the anthem would be defended by the NFL Players Association on the basis of the collective bargaining agreement. Here are some of the things they listed as a reminder to Roger Goodell. This is what they put in writing in defense of Eric Reed. There is no league rule that prohibits players from demonstrating during the national anthem. The NFL has made it clear both publicly and to the NFLPA that they would respect the rights of players to demonstrate. The collective bargaining agreement definitively states that league rules supersede any conflicting club rules. According to our information, a club appears to have based its decision not to sign a player based on the player's statement that he would challenge the implementation of a club's policy prohibiting demonstration, which is contrary to the league policy. At least one club owner has asked pre-employment interview questions about a player's intent to demonstrate. We believe these questions are improper, given league policy. Our union continues to monitor these developments. The NFLPA is making it perfectly clear. The guidance for how to handle protests staged during the anthem is the province of the collective bargaining agreement, not the whims of individual owners. This is an important line in the sand, and we should expect it to be used as a point of reference as the league readies itself for what is likely to be another combustible season. So that's your Just Stand Up Award. It goes to the NFL Players Association. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down, Sit Your Ass Down, goes to a soccer club in Jerusalem called Beitar Jerusalem that has decided to name itself after Donald Trump in honor of the move of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, a move that led Israeli snipers to kill over 50 Palestinians who were demonstrating um, at the wall in Gaza. I don't call it the border because it was something that was put down unilaterally by Israel holding a city under siege. So people who call it the Gaza border, I mean, that that's just a mistake. Let me tell you all something about Beitar Jerusalem, the team that's naming itself after Trump. This is from 2000. After a game, hundreds of Beitar supporters flooded a shopping mall in West Jerusalem, brutally assaulting a group of Palestinian custodians, workers, while chanting death to the Arabs. One of the cleaners, a man named Muhammad Youssef, described it as a mass lynching attempt. The next day's headline in Haaretz, one of the major newspapers in Israel, this is how they described it. Hundreds of Beitar Jerusalem fans beat up Arab workers in mall no arrests. This is who Betar Jerusalem is. They're a fan group, which is called La Familia, which is, of course, a mafia reference. They are notorious, pugnacious, and racist thugs. The idea that this team would name itself after Trump, all I got to say is they deserve each other. They celebrate violence. They celebrate racism. They need to just sit their asses down. Hey everybody, this is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports Podcast. We're trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And you can give five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. Patreon.com/slash/EdgeOfSportsPod. And now back to the broadcast. This week on the Edge of Sports podcast, on Kaepernick watch. I want to play this. It's the new single, new track from Wale, Salary Cap. And cap is spelled K-A-E-P. Let's listen to this. Listen to the beat. Listen to a little bit of Wale. This is a very worthy Kaepernick watch for May 2018. DC's own Wale.
4: I mean, people are dying in vain because this country isn't holding their end of the bargain. As far as, nope. Giving freedom and justice and liberty to everybody. It's something that's not happening. And I've seen videos, I've seen certain circumstances where men and women that have been in the military have come back and been treated unjustly by the country they fought for. And have been murdered by the country they fought for. On our land. Hold it up. Run that track, run that back. Soldier with military raps on deck. Whole another level white boy tryna kill me. Whole lot of melanin black don't crack. And I'm in my back, in my bag. I'm unapologetically forever pro black. No Nazi gonna stop this bag. Infrared beam on Confederate flag. I ain't with the rhetoric the president be on. Forever with my niggas in the level that we on. Can't I make your figures tryna put them for the city? Put a bullet in a nigga, call me nigga any wrong. You a coward, nigga, eat a dick. Shout out Leek, eat rockin' eatin' shit. Yes, MMG, this is the DMV. Free trail flock, eat a rest. Cat nigga, we the best. Corkadel, we need to speakin' shit. Rap a piece about that CTE and give Kappa Nika, new team a check. Right now, cause shit getting D for us right now. They killing our C's boy right now. So we gon take a knee before he pipe down. Chalk D, Chalk D, we gon' fight power. Chuck a deuce if he you he not down. I just had a baby girl and I'm so proud that she so so smart and she so brown. I'ma hold mind down, what are you about? West side of my ride, doing suicides, West side of my ride, playin' old park, a sports talk, over seven on the tray watch eye. I'ma sit course eye. with a broad with a clear life, Fort nice with a broad with the shits, because she go to And she hate fake hoes with the bantu nah. Stop. Black is never going out of style. Look at Melo, Sniper, and LeBron, and then mellow, Then they get to Zion. I ain't even lying. Not a people person, but I do be having color people pride. What you need some vibes? Need to see the vibe, nigga. Me and my people need to rise. Up and see that I people be deprived. Unless you well endowed or you being white, you're a body demon green and white. Wallet open, bitch. I see it twice. Get it, uh? Run that back, run that back Soldier with military 10 on deck Whole never love white boy trying to kill me Whole lot of melanin black don't crack in them in my bag, and my bag I'm unapologetically forever broke black No Nazi gonna stop my back Spread a whole magazine on a red mega hat like
3: Well, that's all for this week's Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to Professor Davis. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu. Shout out to everybody protesting, both in the United States and around the world, and in particularly Gaza against uh, the U.S. Embassy move. Our solidarity is with you here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Hey, yo, everybody. I got a book coming out this week called Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. If you want to check that out, I'm very proud of it. it. Took five years to write about the political life of Jim Brown. Um, I also am going to be doing some events around the book. If you're in New York City on May the 16th, that's Wednesday. I'm going to be over at Verso Books on J Street being interviewed by the great Kevin Powell. And if you're in D.C. on Thursday, I'm going to be at Busboys and Poets on 14th Street alongside the great Howard Bryant. Come on out. To everybody out there listening, you can support the continued existence of this pod a couple of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and give us some financial support. That's not a small thing. It allows us to keep doing what we do. Second of all, you can go to Stitcher, iTunes, or your podcast app of choice and subscribe. Tell a friend to subscribe. Uh, Give us a rating, write a little blurb about why you like the show. All of that stuff makes a huge difference. So to everybody out there listening, thank you so much for supporting what we do. As long as you keep loving it, we'll keep doing it. Stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.